Due to the graphic nature of this episode, we advise caution for our listeners. This episode contains discussions of violence and sexual crimes against minors. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. April 3rd, 1968 was a steamy day in Memphis, Tennessee. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to thousands of demonstrators at a rally for local sanitation workers. The group was protesting unfair employment conditions. Though on the surface it was a labor protest, at its heart it was intertwined with the civil rights movement. A majority of the sanitation employees were black Americans and they were treated inhumanely by their predominantly white supervisors. Dr. King inspired the crowd with his speech. He told them that their work was not over and a long road lay ahead, but he assured them that someday they would succeed. He concluded by telling the crowd, I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Tragically, Dr. King's words were prescient. He didn't get to see the promised land with his audience. The speech would be his last. The following day, Dr. King was assassinated. The country was in shock. Millions of people mourned. That evening, 1,000 miles away from Memphis in New York City, the grief and horror of Dr. King's assassination brought two friends together and changed their lives forever. That night would find writers Maya Angelou and James Baldwin finding comfort in each other's friendship and inspire one of the most influential autobiographies of the modern age. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their monumental legacies are inextricably intertwined. In this episode, we're exploring the friendship of two literary titans, Maya Angelou and James Baldwin. While they grew up in vastly different places, the American Midwest and New York City, they shared similar childhoods marked by the traumas of growing up black in the U.S. Angelou and Baldwin met in Paris in the 1950s. Yet it wasn't until that tragic night of April 4, 1968, that their friendship truly blossomed. They helped each other grieve for one of the greatest figures in American civil rights history and spawned one of the most important memoirs of the 20th century. Coming up, childhood trauma and literature put Angelo and Baldwin on a path to friendship. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Some people read books for fun, others to escape their everyday lives. In their early years, Maya Angelou and James Baldwin didn't have the luxury of reading for pleasure. They did it to escape trauma. From a very young age, Maya Angelou was subjected to heartbreak and suffering. She was born in 1928 in segregated St. Louis, Missouri. At the age of three, she witnessed her parents' divorce. In the aftermath, Angelo and her brother were sent to live with their grandmother in Arkansas. Angelo's years in Arkansas were a bittersweet period of her life. She was inspired by her grandmother, a proud spiritual woman. But it was during this time that Angelo's life tragically changed forever. In 1935, at the age of seven, she was raped by her mother's boyfriend. When her family discovered what had happened, Angelo's uncles took revenge on the rapist. They found, then killed him. Most of the family found vindication in the murder, but not Angelo. For her, it made the pain worse. She felt responsible for the man's death. In her young mind, she equated speaking with brutality. So she stopped talking altogether. She later wrote about the event, I thought my voice killed him. I killed that man because I told his name. And then I thought I would never speak again because my voice would kill anyone. For the next five years, while Angelo was silent, she immersed herself in another form of language books. In the early 1930s, young Angelo devoured every volume she could find. She read adventure books and classics. She studied Edgar Allan Poe and William Shakespeare. Even though Angelo enjoyed Romeo and Juliet, she found that the classics didn't speak to her in the same way as the works of prominent black writers of the time. She gravitated to texts by Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois. As a young black girl growing up in the 1930s Midwest, Angelo was transfixed by Hughes and Du Bois's candid, honest descriptions of black life in America. She immersed herself in their language and let their vibrant characters become her voice. It wasn't until 1940, when Angelo was 12 years old, that she spoke again. After years of silence, Angelo was coaxed out of her quiet retreat by her neighbor, a black woman named Bertha Flowers. Mrs. Flowers instilled in Angelo a deep respect for the spoken word, encouraging her to seek out her own unique voice. At the same time, Mrs. Flowers urged Angelo to pursue her education. In school, Angelo excelled at most subjects. More importantly, though, she discovered her lifelong passions for song, dance, and performance. During the early 1940s, Angelo's voice, dormant for years, emerged like a brilliant butterfly. She dazzled school audiences in Missouri and eventually California, where she moved with her mother. 
When Angelo graduated from high school in 1945, however, she was forced to sideline her love for the performing arts. She needed a steady income not only to support herself, but also a newborn son. As a single mother, Angelo took any job that she could find. She worked in a mechanics shop, a hamburger joint, and even served as the first black female streetcar conductor in San Francisco. But while Angelo earned a living, she couldn't shake her love for singing and dancing. In the early 1950s, she began supplementing her day jobs with more and more stage work. At first, Angelo sang in local productions and cabaret clubs, but soon she started booking parts in Los Angeles and New York City. Then, in 1954, she found an opportunity to perform internationally. Angelo joined a traveling production of the play Porgy and Bess. With that, she flew all over Europe. It was that trip, during a stopover in Paris, that would lead to a chance encounter and a lifelong friendship. When Angelo arrived in Paris in the mid-1950s, it was a hub of bohemian intellectualism and art. Writers, painters, musicians, and philosophers gathered in cafes to drink and discuss the issues of the day. Angelo fit right in with the artistic scene there. She mingled with up-and-coming artists and spent the wee hours of the night carousing and dancing. That summer in Paris in 1954, Angelo met a budding writer, James Baldwin. Little did the two know that at the time, their lives, though vastly different, had many important similarities. It was that shared experience that would become the basis for their bond over the coming years. Much like Maya Angelou, James Baldwin was born in 1920s America, and his early life was marked by its own kind of trauma. Baldwin and his nine siblings were raised in the heart of Harlem, New York. They lived in a series of cramped, rat-infested tenement apartments. The buildings were often shared by pimps, prostitutes, and other criminals. In spite of the climate outside the Baldwin home, young James's main threat was inside his stepfather, David. A religious zealot, David terrified his children. He forced them to read the Bible on a daily basis and considered it the only acceptable book in his household. James's stepfather vilified the world outside of their neighborhood. He forbade James and his siblings from going to the theater and other forms of entertainment, and he convinced his children that white society wanted to kill them. James Baldwin's only escape from the tyranny of his stepfather and the crime of Harlem was through reading. He found ways to sneak books into the apartment. He stayed late at school and frequented the library. There, stories transported him to a world outside of Harlem where he could be free. In 1933, at the age of nine, Baldwin wanted more than to just read stories. He began writing his own. Within a year, he wrote a play that was directed and produced by one of his teachers. Baldwin's teachers encouraged him to continue writing. He joined school newspapers and wrote more stories and plays. But for a young black man in 1930s New York, life in the arts was not an easy path. He was subjected to racial slurs and prejudice inside at his school and outside on the streets. 
Besides the racial obstacles, Baldwin also had to contend with his stepfather's domination. David Baldwin didn't recognize literature outside of the Bible, so he refused to allow James to become a writer. Instead, he forced the teenager towards the life of a preacher. By 1941, however, 17-year-old Baldwin realized the church was not for him. He quit preaching. But his stepfather still pushed him away from writing and into menial jobs. In the early 1940s, much like Maya Angelou, Baldwin helped support his family through a series of traditional low-paying jobs. But in 1943, Baldwin's stepfather died. 19-year-old James was free to pursue a career as a writer. Within months, Baldwin moved to Greenwich Village, the hub of art and progressive thought in New York City. Even though it was only a few miles from Harlem, it seemed like a world away. He met actors, writers, and philosophers. In addition to fellow artists, Baldwin also made important connections with editors and publishers. Soon, they recognized his writing ability and hired him to pen literary commentaries and criticisms. But as a black writer, Baldwin's newfound success came with a catch. Editors expected Baldwin to critique only black authors, not writers in general. He was pigeonholed as a black critic. But Baldwin was undeterred by this setback. He plowed ahead, writing about any topics that interested him. Over the coming years, he developed a dedicated following of readers. They were drawn to his style, which was equal parts poetic and brutally realistic. People said he combined the passion of a preacher's sermon with the unflinching honesty of a critic. Baldwin used this passion and honesty to portray the shared experiences of black people. And perhaps most importantly, he shone a light on the systemic racism in America. He wrote, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Even though Baldwin loved America, especially in New York City, he also felt the need to leave his birthplace. In the late 1940s, he decided to head to Paris. Little did Baldwin know the move would not only inspire his work for years to come, but it would also introduce him to one of the most important friends in his life, Maya Angelou. Coming up, Angelou and Baldwin's lives intersect in Paris, and their shared pasts strengthen their bond as friends. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In many ways, Maya Angelou and James Baldwin lived parallel lives. Even though they grew up thousands of miles apart, they were both raised in poverty in the 1930s. During their early years, each used books to escape the trauma of their childhoods. They were also recognized as talented artists at a young age. As adults, the similarities continued. 
Angelo and Baldwin both worked a series of menial jobs to support their families. After a time, they bravely pursued artistic careers in spite of racial and economic obstacles. Then, coincidentally, the two young artists made the decision to leave America. Unbeknownst to them, their international travels would impact them for the rest of their lives. James Baldwin was the first of the two writers to leave the U.S. In 1948, 24-year-old Baldwin bought a plane ticket to Paris with the money he received through an artistic fellowship. To him, the move to Europe was symbolic for various reasons. First, it gave him a way to escape the lingering oppression of his stepfather. Even though David Baldwin had died five years earlier, James no doubt felt echoes of the family patriarch throughout New York City. But even more important than freedom from his stepfather's memory was the status of post-war Paris. Baldwin and many black Americans saw it as a place of refuge. The French city still had racial prejudice, but it was more tolerant of black visitors and citizens than the U.S., where many American restaurants, bars, and cafes were still segregated, Parisian establishments were not. So when Baldwin arrived in the City of Light, he was struck with excitement and freedom. He quickly fell in love with the cobblestone streets and quaint arrondissements. But life in Paris wasn't all cafes and strolling along the River Seine. Baldwin worked a variety of jobs to support himself. He wrote for a handful of French magazines and even clerked for a lawyer. However, Baldwin didn't let his day job stand in the way of his true passion, completing a book. In 1953, the 29-year-old published his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. The book explored not only American black identity, but also his sexuality as a gay man, which Baldwin felt more comfortable exploring in Paris. Baldwin followed up the success of Go Tell It on the Mountain with a series of acclaimed essays. This included Notes of a Native Son, which dissected the moral, psychological, and emotional history of the U.S. Baldwin's essays were groundbreaking because he didn't simply highlight the difference between white and black experience. Baldwin reconsidered the very idea of reality and how it is defined differently by races. Many critics and scholars consider these works to be some of the most honest and unflinching descriptions of racism in America. When Baldwin wasn't writing in Paris, he surrounded himself with a community of artists and intellectuals. During this time, Baldwin became friends with celebrities like Marlon Brando and Nina Simone. Along with his famous friends, Baldwin frequently hosted parties at his home. He had an open-door policy, and many creative people came and went. One of those artists who walked through Baldwin's door was a young singer named Maya Angelou. When Angelou arrived in Paris in 1954 with a traveling production of Porgy and Bess, she too fell in love with the cafe culture. She loved the freedom of being able to go wherever she wanted and not having to worry about segregated establishments. And when Angelou appeared at James Baldwin's home one evening, they became instant friends. They discussed classical literature, recent book releases, music, and civil rights. Angelo electrified Baldwin and his guests with stories of her childhood in Missouri and Arkansas. She was such a natural storyteller that Baldwin and others urged her to write a memoir about her life. Angelo brushed it off. 
She wasn't ready to write about her past. It was still too raw and personal, and she didn't believe that anyone would want to read about it. But Baldwin's parties inspired her in other ways. Angelo began writing about civil rights and the more broad black experience. Over the course of the few months that Angelo was in Paris, she and Baldwin became close friends. Even though Baldwin insisted that people call him by his proper name, James, he permitted Angelo to call him Jimmy. Their connection was so strong that they promised to stay in touch after Angelo had to leave with the production of Porgy and Bess. As they said their goodbyes, Baldwin even recommended that Angelo move to his hometown, New York City, when she eventually returned to the U.S. Sure enough, in 1959, after her international tour, Angelo took Baldwin's advice. She settled in Manhattan, more specifically, Baldwin's birthplace of Harlem. There, she immersed herself in the music scene. She found work in cabaret clubs and eventually performed at the renowned Apollo Theater. But Harlem wasn't just a bustling music scene. It also had a thriving community of writers. Angelo fit right in. In the early 1960s, she joined the Harlem Writers Guild, where she gained confidence as a writer. It was also in Harlem that she came to meet a young civil rights leader, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Angelo was so struck by Reverend King's message that she decided to pause her music career and join the civil rights movement. In 1960, 32-year-old Angelo volunteered for King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, where she served as Northern Coordinator. Angelo remained with King's movement for about a year, but eventually left to pursue her writing internationally. In 1961, she moved to Cairo, Egypt, where she became an associate editor at the weekly newspaper, The Arab Observer. A year later, she moved to Ghana. There, she joined a community of writers who tackled the tough issues of identity and race. The group included one of her childhood heroes, W.E.B. Du Bois. Even with such all-star talent as Du Bois at her side, Angelo continued to draw inspiration from her friend Jimmy Baldwin. He continued to encourage her to write and often reminded her that she should start working on her memoir. Every time Baldwin raised the issue of an autobiography, Angelo laughed it off. She still didn't think anyone wanted to read about her life. She politely told Baldwin to focus on his own writing instead. Unlike Angelo, Baldwin didn't have many issues writing about his own life experiences. In 1962, he published his groundbreaking novel, Another Country. Set in Baldwin's old stomping ground of Greenwich Village, New York, the book explored race, poverty, and sexuality. At that time, Another Country received mixed reviews but later became a bestseller. Baldwin followed it up with the 1963 essay, The Fire Next Time, about race in America. In it, he wrote... I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense, once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. The essay became a sensation, selling over a million copies in its first release. Its depiction of black violence in response to white oppression took on a prophetic meaning by the end of the 60s, as protests and violence spread across the country. During this era, Baldwin came to be seen as a controversial writer 
To some white audiences, he was too incendiary. To some black audiences, he pandered too much to mainstream readers. But for many people, Baldwin thrived in the difficult balance. He spoke the blunt truth about racial injustice and the need for change. For this reason, his novels and essays endeared him to the civil rights movement, and he became friends with Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers, and other prominent leaders. Once again, Baldwin and Angelo's lives intersected in the civil rights movement. In early 1968, while Baldwin traveled the country speaking about racism, Angelo once again volunteered to help Martin Luther King Jr.'s organization. She planned to help him raise money for a series of marches around the U.S. But before she could, a tragedy occurred that would drastically alter all of their lives. On April 4, 1968, Dr. King was assassinated. News of King's death rattled both writers. Angelo was nearly inconsolable. She refused to leave her home in New York, but luckily her old friend Jimmy Baldwin came to her side. That evening, Baldwin arrived unexpectedly at her door. He told her to shower and clean the tears off her cheeks. Then he convinced her to accompany him to a gathering of friends. Reluctantly, Angelo agreed. She didn't feel like socializing, but she quickly found that the group of friends were as devastated as her. They shared stories and grief and comforted each other. As Angelo warmed up to the group, she told anecdotes about her youth in Arkansas. She figured they would take everyone's minds off of the tragedy. She described her mother, grandmother, and their family, and she told stories of the trauma and pain that affected her. Once again, the audience was spellbound by Angelo's tales. Baldwin was as convinced as ever that Angelo should compile her stories into a memoir. Of course, Angelo was still resistant, so in the days that followed, Baldwin hatched a plan to persuade her once and for all. Baldwin pleaded with Angelo to at least call her editor and talk through the idea. A few days later, when Angelo called her editor, she was shocked by his response. Instead of agreeing with Baldwin's recommendation, he discouraged Angelo from writing a memoir. He explained that the market for autobiographies was slim. Besides that, it was doubtful that anyone would read such a book written by a black woman. It felt like a slap across the face for Angelo. But what Angelo didn't know at the time was that Baldwin had coached her editor ahead of time to say that. His hunch was that Angelo would be more determined to write a memoir if she was told she couldn't do it. And he was right. Within days, Angelo started writing. She worked day and night, transcribing her memories to paper. It was no small feat. She revisited horrific moments of her youth. She described both personal trauma as well as systemic racism. At one point, she wrote, The black female is assaulted in her tender years by all those common forces of nature at the same time that she is caught in the tripartite crossfire of masculine prejudice, white illogical hate, and black lack of power. But she interlaced these tragic moments with poignant memories of her childhood as well. She recounted the strength and beauty of her grandmother and concluded the book with the joyous birth of her son. 
1969, after a year of writing, 41-year-old Angelo put the finishing touches on her first memoir titled, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It was published later that year and became an immediate success. And Angelo had her friend James Baldwin to thank for it. Coming up, after Baldwin's influence, Angelo's success grows larger and the state of both their legacies today. Now back to the story. In 1969, 41-year-old Maya Angelou burst onto the literary stage. Her first memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, was a critical success. Using recollections of her childhood and upbringing, Angelou portrayed the resilience of black women. She wrote poetically and honestly, describing both the joys and traumas of her early life. A review in the Washington Post said it was written right from the center of blackness and that it refused to prettify the difficult upbringing that Angelo experienced as a black girl. Within a year, Angelo's Caged Bird won the National Book Award. But it wasn't just a critical success. It also spent two years on the New York Times bestseller list. Angelo was overwhelmed by the response. She'd been confident in her writing ability before, but she never expected her memoir to receive such attention, especially since she wrote so candidly about pain and racism. Her friend and mentor, James Baldwin, on the other hand, was not surprised by her success. He'd encouraged her to write this book for years. And now that Angelo had broken the ice, Baldwin urged her to continue writing. He knew she had more stories to tell. While Angelo was working on her follow-up to I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Baldwin continued to crank out his own works. While strong and poignant, they didn't reach the same pinnacle as his previous masterpieces. In 1972, he released No Name in the Street, and in 1974, If Beale Street Could Talk. Despite their mixed reception among critics and audiences, they were still important works about race and identity. With his book sales slowing during the 1970s and early 1980s, Baldwin focused on speaking engagements across Europe and the U.S. He lectured audiences about the growing violence between civil rights protesters and the police. Baldwin's busy lecture circuit meant that he was on the road for most of the year. As a result, he didn't stay in touch with Angelo as much as before, but he still kept tabs on her career. In 1973, Angelo won a Tony Award for her performance in the play Look Away. Then in 1977, she was nominated for an Emmy for her role in the groundbreaking television series Roots, a multi-generational epic of black life in America. Though Angelo proved herself as a talented actor, her friend Jimmy Baldwin never let her forget about her writing. In 1978, she released a collection of poetry which contained one of her most famous works, a poem called Still I Rise. She wrote, Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear. I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise. I rise. With Still I Rise, Angelo's career left behind nights of terror and entered its own daybreak that was wondrously clear. If I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings launched Angelo's career, 
Still I rise catapulted her into stardom. She became the voice and embodiment of her lyrical words. Soon, she was invited to read her poem for national and international audiences. Though her reputation grew larger than she or Baldwin had ever imagined, he always cheered her from the sidelines. The two remained close friends for decades. Then, on December 1st, 1987, Angelo lost her friend and mentor. James Baldwin died of cancer at age 63. It was another devastating loss for Angelo. In her grief, she penned a poem which she read at his funeral. She called it, When Great Trees Fall. She said, When great trees fall, rocks on distant hills shudder, lions hunker down in tall grasses, and even elephants lumber after safety. To Angelo, and to much of the world, Baldwin was a great tree who had fallen. He was a literary and cultural icon. After a period of hunkering down in the grasses after Baldwin's death, Angelo went back to work. Even though her mentor and friend was gone, she continued to follow his principles, to tell stories with raw honesty and passion. Through the 1990s and into the early 2000s, Angelo published more poetry and memoirs, In 1993, she recited her poem, On the Pulse of Mourning, at the inauguration of President Bill Clinton. Then, in 2010, at the age of 82, Angelo was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest American civilian honor. Angelo's immense talent brought her success in a nearly endless list of creative endeavors. She wrote 36 books and won dozens of awards. When she died in 2014 at the age of 86, she left a staggering legacy of work. Even though Maya Angelou became arguably the bigger star, James Baldwin's work has seen a resurgence over the past decade as racial inequality and police brutality against black Americans persist. Modern audiences have returned or been introduced to his canon of work. In 2016, Oscar-winning director Barry Jenkins credited Baldwin's writings as inspiration for his film Moonlight. In 2018, one of Baldwin's later novels, If Beale Street Could Talk, was adapted into a film. Besides feature films, Baldwin's speeches and writings have been used in recent advertising, music, and social media to express the need for racial justice. Baldwin's message remains as relevant today as it did in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The legacies of both writers are as monumental as their respective lives. From the roots of their traumatic childhoods, they became powerhouses in the literary world. They used their talent with language to record stories of black pain, anguish, but also to celebrate joy and perseverance. They inspired others to take up the gauntlet and continue the fight for equality. And in the middle of it all, Angelo and Baldwin found a lifelong connection that transcended definition. They were friends, colleagues, fellow writers, and partners in the civil rights movement. In 1987, Angelo wrote about their kindred bond in the New York Times, explaining, Brothers are hard to come by and are as necessary as air and as precious as love. 
I am blessed that James Baldwin was my brother. As brother and sister, James Baldwin and Maya Angelou pushed each other to succeed and comforted each other in times of darkness. Beyond being friends and colleagues to one another, they were family. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Obituaries was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy